You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Having more people who are comfortable with who they are and more diverse really brings better results and it's kind of a a multiplier effect. So I'm a big believer of diversity and inclusion. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. So diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, it's been a big topic of conversation, particularly workplace conversation over the past few years. It's also been a bit of a lightning rod. Well, today we're going to break it down. We're going to dig into what it is, what works, what doesn't. But since we haven't talked about it much before on this show, I thought it would be best just to back up a second and talk about where this came from. Here's a little bit of history that I pulled from the folks at the Greenlining Institute. Basically, the DEI movement, at least in the U.S., it is nothing new. It has its roots in the 1960s civil rights movement, and it has grown over the years to include gender and sexual orientation, religion, country of origin, and other identities. Back in the 60s and mid-70s, the focus was on tolerance, meaning the acceptance of integration of workplaces, schools, and communities. From the 70s through the 90s, the focus was largely on multiculturalism, being aware of the achievements of various racial and ethnic minorities. But as demographics started to shift and minority groups really began to grow, the emphasis has been on inclusion and equity. Since the early 2010s, there's been an increased emphasis on accountability to ensure that all diverse groups are represented at economic and at social levels. So over the years, this movement has built fans It's built detractors. According to research from Pew Women, are more likely than men to value DEI at work. People under 30 are the most likely age group to say focusing on DEI at work is a good thing. Research has also found it can be good for a company's bottom line. A 2020 McKinsey report found that companies with more than 30% women executives were the most likely to outperform less gender-diverse companies when it came to profitability. Even more compelling, companies with the highest number of ethnic and cultural diversity outperform the least diverse by a wide margin. More recently, though, there has been chatter that for some companies, DEI efforts are all just a facade to make their workplace look better without really putting much effort into making changes that matter. Maeve Duvalley is on a mission to change all of that and to be a mentor in particular for trans employees in the workplace because she's lived that herself at a place that is notorious for not being an easy place for women to work 
Wall Street. She spent nearly 20 years at Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch in corporate communications and was a financial journalist before that. She's an LGBTQ plus advocate, communications and diversity and inclusion consultant, and she serves on the board of multiple nonprofits, including GLAAD, Anchor Health Initiative, and Trans New York. She's also got a new book. We're excited about that. It's called Maeve Rising, Coming Out Trans in Corporate America. America. Maeve, welcome. So nice to have you here. Jean, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to having a delightful conversation. Me too, on a rainy day. Delightful conversation on a rainy day. So you've had a lot to overcome in your life. Can you tell me about the discovery of who you really were, how you got there. I know that it had to do with sobriety, among other things. Sure. Unlike a lot of other transgender people, I wasn't really consciously aware of the fact I was transgender for the vast majority of my life. I got sober after a lifelong battle with alcoholism in January of 2018 and it's no accident, I believe, that I realized I was transgender about nine months later in October of 2018. So for me, the lesson is that without sobriety, I would not know who I am. And I could look at it from another perspective, that I was always there, but the fact I was drinking prevented me from discovering who I was. So 2018 was a pivotal year for me. It changed my life in many ways, and it set me on a new path. Before you officially came out as trans at work, you said you were living two lives. In fact, you wrote, I spent the day at Clark Kent, and on the way out of Goldman Sachs, I transformed into Wonder Woman. We love that quote. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to me about those two lives and how that was for you. After I realized I was transgender in October of 2018, I immediately came out in my social life, particularly in the recovery circles I spend a lot of time in. But I was not ready to come out yet at Goldman Sachs. And why don't people come out? People don't come out because they're worried they won't be accepted. And I spent a really big portion of my life at Goldman Sachs every day, 10, 11, 12 hours. And the whole idea that I wouldn't be accepted was very worrisome for me. So I didn't come out for a period of eight months or so. And in that time, I had literally led a double life. And it the biggest manifestation of that was when I finished for the day, I would gradually over the course of half hour, 45 minutes in two or three different places around the building at Goldman Sachs, I would change from my male work clothes into clothes. I would change my facial appearance and I'd leave the building as Maeve. And then the next day, I'd do the whole thing all over again. And that was quite frankly, very exhilarating when I first started doing it. But by the end of my time doing it, by April, I came out at Goldman Sachs in May of 2019. And by March or April, of that year, it was very, very tiresome for me. And I was at the point where I just needed to come out. I wasn't going to worry about acceptance. I just needed to come out. Yeah, I imagine it must have been incredibly exhausting 
right? I travel for work, and sometimes I don't like to get on a plane in heels and a dress necessarily because it's always so freezing on the airplane. And so I will carry jeans or a pair of sweats or, or pants or something and go through the process of just changing in the bathroom so I'm not freezing on the airplane. I cannot imagine what it's like trying to do that every day for months while trying to also maintain some degree of privacy. Incidentally, it's the same thing with sobriety. So when somebody's an alcoholic and they're working a very difficult job and everything, I spent so much of my time hiding the fact that I had a drinking problem. And all the effort that goes into hiding something, that detracts from what you can do with the rest of your life. So once you kind of give up that secret and you come out, it's really such a relief. How was it when you came out? Was it a relief? Tell me about that day. Sure. What was unique about that day, and that was I left work for the last day presenting as a male, the Friday before Memorial Day in 2019, and then I came in as Maeve on the Tuesday after Memorial Day. And what was a little bit unique about that experience was a New York Times reporter had decided to write a story about my experience, and we gave the reporter access. We allowed the reporter to shadow me for my first couple of days at work. So that made the experience unique. And I'll tell you, as I prepared to enter the building on that day, it was probably the best day of my life, most exciting, most exhilarating. Of course, I had anxiety because I didn't know what was going to happen that day. It was the type of experience that was so unique, I could have no idea what that day was going to be like. And it turned out very well. My coworkers accepted me, they encouraged me, they supported me, and I just had a fabulous day. We're talking a lot about trying to bring your full self to work, being able to be yourself, whoever you are. How would you encourage people who are hiding something to start to feel more comfortable about being themselves in the workplace? I think the most important thing is to talk to other people because not just on this particular issue and not just for LGBTQ plus people, but everybody, when you're in your head and you're not talking about what's going on inside of you to other people, you tend to think your circumstances are unique and specific to you and you have a reason for doing what you're doing. But when you talk to other people, you learn that other people have likely gone through some of the similar situations that you find yourself in, and that tends to break the isolation, and it makes it a lot easier. So I think the most important thing to do is to find people who've gone through similar experiences, share what's going on in your head with them. They'll share their experience with you, and that's just going to help make you feel more comfortable and be willing to over time, because everybody's different, right? I never tell anybody that you need to come out now or you shouldn't come out now. All I can do is share my experience in the hope that other people will identify with my experience. They can take something from that and apply it to their lives. You were only the second person to use quote-unquote official channels to come out as trans at Goldman. 
What does it mean, official channels? And is there an advantage to going through some sort of a process with your employer? I work at a very small company and and haven't been at a very big company for a very long time. And I'm just sort of wondering for people who are struggling with anything, what is an official channel? Yes. So as I said earlier, I realized I was transgender in October of 2018. In January, I went to our human resources department in January of 2019 to the Goldman Sachs Human Resources Department and told them I was trans. And they helped me with insurance. They helped me find doctors. But I told them I wasn't ready to come out. And I trusted them to respect my anonymity. So I was out to them, but I wasn't out to everybody at Goldman Sachs. So for me to go through official channels was to come out in a very public way. I had no doubt that besides me, there were probably many more transgender people at Goldman Sachs, but they had chosen not to come out yet. And then in April of 2019, about six weeks before I ended up coming out of Goldman Sachs, I told the Human Resources Department that I was ready to come out. So we got together and we formulated a plan about everything that needed to be done to make that experience a success. And we came up with a really good to-do list. We executed well, and I was very happy with the experience. What was on that list? One of the biggest things on that list was to come up with lists of people that we needed to tell in advance that this was going to happen. Because when you think about it, my name changes, my appearance changes, and if I were just to suddenly show up in my office with people who work closely with me every day, they quite frankly probably wouldn't know how to deal with me in many circumstances. Some of them would, but many of them wouldn't. So we did that for people internally, and then we did that for people externally who I work with regularly. And because I worked in media relations at Goldman Sachs, the biggest external constituency was reporters. So we let a lot of the reporters know in advance that I was coming out. And that's why the New York Times, the reporter for the New York Times who covers Goldman Sachs decided that it was worth a story. And she did that. So that was one aspect of it. And then I think the most important part of the plan was that someone in human resources was assigned to me as almost my relationship manager. So she made sure that anything that came up during the course of those six weeks that was causing me anxiety that I felt were an impediment to me successfully coming out at work, she would try to kind of break through those barriers. And she did, and she supported me. And things did come up that we had to address along the way, things that I hadn't anticipated, and everything worked out fine. What were those blockers? So one thing that I hadn't really thought about was working out. Goldman Sachs has a gym within its headquarters in New York, and I use that gym every single morning. And as it got closer to the day that I was going to come out at Goldman Sachs, I suddenly realized that I had to use the women's locker room going forward, and that gave me a lot of anxiety. And I just didn't want to be in a position where I made people uncomfortable by being in the locker room. So We just came up with a plan where I would do kind of a dry run on the weekend before I came out when nobody really was in the locker room and everything worked out fine and I got comfortable and we worked through it. And that's 
generally been my experience coming out. Every time I did something new for the first time, it caused me anxiety, but I was quickly able to overcome that and, and get comfortable with doing all the new things that I do in my life now. I think many of us have been on the opposite side of the equation, and we've had colleagues who have come out as trans or as gay. What's the best way for us to be allies, to be supportive? I think one of the important things to do is to ask questions. I'm one of those people where as long as people ask me questions out of a place of kindness, I'm pretty much every question's in play, and that's how people learn. When people make mistakes, that's okay. That's how people learn. And so I encourage people to ask those questions that they've always wondered about and would make the situation a lot more comfortable if they knew how a, a transgender person was going to respond to something. So asking those questions. And then once you're comfortable being an ally, the most important thing to being an ally is to support whoever it is you're being an ally to. So when you see bad behavior, call it out. When you see somebody saying something that's inappropriate, call it out. So those are, I think, two things I would recommend to people who want to make us more comfortable in the workplace and outside of the workplace. I'm going to ask you to put on your hat as a diversity and inclusion consultant and talk about how companies can be more inclusive when they're hiring. But before we do that, Maeve, we're going to take a very quick break. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And we are back with Maeve Duvalli, author of the new book, Maeve Rising. When you put on your hat as a diversity and inclusion consultant, what advice do you have for companies that are looking to be more inclusive than hiring, and why should we be? I firmly believe that the more diverse the workforce is, the better it is for the company's results. And that's for a couple of different reasons. Number one, it's because I now bring very unique perspectives to the workplace that I probably didn't before, and I'm just one person. So if you multiply that by all the people in underrepresented groups, that can be very, very powerful. And encouraging people to be themselves in the workplace also makes for a better workplace. So I was not a very happy person for most of my life until I got sober and realized who I was. But now that I'm in the place I'm at right now, I'm happier. I'm more collegial. I'm more inclusive myself. I now look out for the quiet underdogs in the room and look for ways to bring those people in. And I can tell you, I never really did that before. So I'm a better employee and having more people who are comfortable with who they are and more diverse really brings 
better results and it's kind of a, a multiplier effect. So I'm a big believer of diversity and inclusion. So Maeve, Wall Street, and I, I worked on Wall Street for a couple of years early in my career, Wall Street's not really typically been known as a place that is friendly to women. We've had a, a few women on this show who've left Wall Street because they didn't feel as if they were supported or they belonged. Do you think that that has changed? I think it has changed. It probably hasn't changed enough. I think at the corporate level, big Wall Street firms do want to have greater representation from traditionally underrepresented groups. And they are putting policies in place to recruit more and policies to retain more people. I know at Goldman Sachs, they're trying to have incoming classes of employees of at least 50% women. And unfortunately, there's still a tendency for the percentage of women to drop as they get more senior. So definitely still some work to do there. Unfortunately, there's probably still pockets of behavior that's just not appropriate and is offensive to women and causes them to leave the workplace. Hopefully, those pockets are getting smaller and smaller, but they're still there. What's the reaction or what should the reaction be when you come up against one of those pockets, when you find yourself working for a company or a firm that isn't supportive of you as your true self? How do you react? How do you fight back? Especially now, I mean, look, we're living in this world where where we have states that are passing anti-trans laws. People are afraid of losing their jobs if they come out at work. Yeah, the, the best thing to do is to call out the bad behavior when you see it and hopefully to be surrounded by allies so that when they see the bad behavior, they call it out as well. But I've certainly come to realize, and I've certainly been in situations where, not necessarily just at Goldman Sachs, but in the outside world as well, where I've been subjected to comments or behavior that's just plain wrong. And I definitely understand now why sometimes you're just so shocked that you can't do anything at the time. So the best thing to do is to call it out. But if you can't or don't feel comfortable doing it, is to report the behavior immediately and to hold the company accountable for dealing with that bad behavior. Research from McKinsey, this is a couple of years ago, 2021, found that transgender adults are twice as likely as cisgender adults to be unemployed and that cisgender employees make 32% more than trans employees. You've spent your life, a good part of your life, in financial services. These are some pretty demoralizing statistics. So what advice would you give to trans adults, or for that matter, any adult struggling with an identity that they think is holding them back financially about building a financial life that can sustain you? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm very familiar with that study. That That's a great study, and it's nice to have statistics like that. Transgender people are very different. A lot of times, people are tempted to kind of lump all the letters of LGBTQ plus together, but 
the situation with transgender people and let's say gay people is very, very different. I would think that for gay people, their median income is probably above the national average, whereas transgender people, it's way below. A lot of transgender people come from broken homes. Hopefully this is changing now and parents are becoming more accepting, but a lot come from broken homes and they never overcome that that disadvantage that they have, and they really have trouble making a living. Fortunately, there are some companies in some industries that are trying to do something about that. There are often now job fairs that concentrate on LGBTQ plus people. I know those exist in the financial services industry. I believe they exist in technology and entertainment. These are three industries that I think at least are trying to make an effort to hire more LGBTQ plus people. So getting into those job fairs where there's kind of targeted hiring, I think is very important. And I mentor a lot of transgender people, and my specialty is transgender people who are already in corporate America or want to be in corporate America. And so the important thing is to find people like me who've done it before and can mentor you and can give you advice and talk about some of the things you want to avoid, some of the things that are going to happen in ways you can cope with those things. So again, I keep saying it's communication and just talking it over with people who've been through it before. It sounds like the definition of good mentorship in general. So as you look back to 2018 and think about five years down the road, what your life actually looks like now, was this what you envisioned? Was this what you predicted? Was it what you wished for? No. And that's a good thing. And the reason I say it's a good thing, because I believe that expectations tend to limit us because our expectations about the future are usually colored by our past experience. So for me, once I got sober, I figured my life would look roughly like what it did before, only it would be a little bit better because I wasn't drinking anymore. And lo and behold, I discovered I was transgender. I became an advocate for LGBTQ plus people. I wrote a book. I'm on podcasts like yours. Presumably people want to hear what I have to say. And none of that was on my radar screen in 2018. So I, I try my best not to have expectations about the future. Of course I do. I can't help myself, but to the extent that I can do it, I try not to think about what the future is. Let the future unfold and just enjoy it as it's unfolding. Thank you so much for the candor and the conversation. Where can our listeners go to find out more about you? I've just published a book, Mave Rising, and to promote the book, I've, I've become more active on social media. So you can find me on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Instagram, and maveduvalley.com is my website. If you go to all those places, you can find out what's going on in my life and hopefully buy the book. Fantastic. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And now we're going to take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we are back for our mailbag. My daughter, Julia Chatsky, is joining us. I don't know why, Jules, I'm surprised that Goldman would be so helpful. You think of Wall Street as as a place where it would be difficult to come out, maybe difficult to make the sort of transition that Maeve made. But I was pleased to hear her story and to hear how supportive her colleagues were. Totally. I mean, that's what it takes, right? These bigger, more, I don't know the word, but just those places that we think wouldn't be great, it takes them to be great. So that way, the places that aren't great can sort of see and follow. So good for them and I'm excited for Maeve. Absolutely. I know we've got some questions, so let's dive in. All right. Our first question today comes to us from Flora. She writes, Hi, Jean and the Her Money crew. A friend told me about your podcast back in 2017, and I've been a regular listener since. Thanks to your podcast, that's also the year I started saving for retirement. I got a late start, but in those six years, I have managed to save over $60,000 a year salary through a workplace retirement account and an individual Roth IRA. I'm in my mid-30s, so I have more ground to make up, but your show is a big part of the reason I have anything saved at all. So thank you. I recently started a new job with a very small company, under five employees, and my employer has just set up a simple IRA with a 3% company match. As a small business, my employer wanted to deal with a smaller investment firm, American Funds via Capital Group. Not sure how small, but they are besides the point. I just received my first statement and was shocked to see a 5.73% sales charge on my IRA contribution and a 5.74% sales charge on the employer match. I dove into the paperwork, and that is on top of the 1.2% management fee for the target date fund the IRA is in. Is this standard? All other employer retirement funds I hold are with Fidelity, and I have never seen a sales charge, but I also never got paper statements. I just managed to do everything through the app, so I'm not sure if I'm making a big deal of a standard practice. My next step would be calling the American Fund sales rep, but I don't feel very educated on the matter, and I'm not even sure how to go about asking. Thank you for your time and all of the advice you've shared over the years. Flora. So, Flora, this is a great question. It's not one that we have had to deal with on the podcast before, but this is exactly why you want to be reading your statements. You want to be looking at what the charges are for your retirement account. And the answer is no, it's not really standard. So what's happening here is that American Funds is a company that charges a front-end load. And a front-end load is basically a sales charge or a commission that you pay up front when you're purchasing 
the investment. And these charges generally range from about three and three quarters percent to five and three quarters percent. So your charge is definitely on the high side. They tend to have lower fees and expense ratios going forward. But if you're paying 1.2% for that target date fund, then that's not lower going forward. I would not just call American funds, but I would talk to your employer. I would talk to the folks who set up this plan for you because they may not understand the sorts of charges that employees are facing. And I know as a small employer, when we shopped around for our plan, we did take a a careful look at what people were going to be charged. Because when you're a small employer and you're making a 3% contribution toward the match, you're trying to help your employees get ahead. And so I'd take this up with HR. My guess is you're not the only person who has noticed this. Maybe you're not even the only person who has taken it up with HR. But there are so many other options available, even to small employers, through other firms that are going to leave the employees with a lot more money to work for them. I would aggravate for a change. But on the flip side, good for you for doing all the saving. I mean, that's great. You've managed to save a lot of money in a relatively short period of time. And to me, that says that you're going to be really successful on this retirement journey going forward. So good luck with that. And let us know what happens. Our next question comes from Pam. She writes, Hello, I'm new to her money. I'm retired. An area I'm interested is in how to make a little money or continue to save for vacations or special purchases, etc. I'm young, 59, and don't want to get into the habit of taking chunks of my money out of my retirement funds. Working is an option, but I want flexibility. I think I want this because right now I don't have to work. I'm just very conservative with my money and trying to protect it for whatever may happen in the future. Thanks. Thanks, Pam, for writing. And wow, retired at 59. I'm going to actually be 59 in like two weeks. How's that make you feel, Mom? Terrible. 59. I'm not not happy about 59, actually, Jules. I don't know why. I usually don't have much trouble with my birthday, but I'm having a little bit of trouble with this one because 59 feels like it's almost 60. Well, I hate to break it to you. (laughs) It is almost 60, but 12 months until we, we face that, so... And I'm not retiring for a long time. But but good for Pam. Good for Pam. Pam, I I think that basically what you need is a spending plan that lays out how much money you can pull out for vacations or other things while continuing to leave your retirement principal pretty much as is. And That's another word for budget. I don't love the word budget. I prefer to just plan spending going forward. And you may find that it's easiest for you to pull a particular chunk, a chunk of money, a certain sum out of your savings every single month. And then I would think about 
resaving some of it in a different account for those special vacations or other things. So here's how the math kind of works in my head. If you know that every month you've got, and I'm just pulling this number out of the air. If you know that every month you're going to take $6,000 out of your retirement money or your savings or wherever you're keeping it, and that is the amount that you are giving yourself to live on. If you take a thousand of that and you put it back into a separate vacation account six months from now, and live basically on the remaining $5,000. Six months from now, there's $6,000 in that vacation account. And you can use that and you can go on a great trip or do one of those other special things that you were thinking about. It's a form of mental accounting, which is basically something that we learned from behavioral finance, which is when you look at your money in specific pots for specific purposes, you actually have a better shot of achieving those goals for those purposes. So that's what I'd suggest. And if you find yourself wanting to pick up some part-time work along the way, maybe doing something that you enjoy, then I think that's good too. But for now, this is how I would go about it. For me, it works. Anyway, thanks so much for the question, Pam. If you've got any other money-related questions, we would love to hear from you. Just send them our way by emailing us at mailbag at hermoney.com. Thanks, Jules. See you soon. Bye. And now we're going to take a quick break. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And we are back with your money tip of the week. So we are smack dab in the middle of wedding season. And is it just me or does it feel like everyone's getting married this year? A big heads up and congratulations to our producer, Haley, who just got married, and also Kelly, who runs business development at Her Money. You know her from early days of the podcast. They both got married this year. But let's face it, weddings are expensive. They're really expensive for people in their 20s and 30s who are just starting to sock away money for retirement. And no, we're not talking about how expensive it is for the bride and groom today. We know that number is astronomical. We're talking about how costly it can be to be a guest. If you're traveling by a car to a wedding, you'll probably spend an average of about $640 per wedding. If you're traveling by plane, double that. And that doesn't include the bachelor and bachelorette parties, bridal shower gifts, or engagement parties. So how can we celebrate but also give our wallets a breather? First, It's okay to be selective about the pre-wedding festivities you take part in and be honest with the bride or the groom about why you're sitting an event out. Also, 
If you're traveling a significant distance for a wedding, you don't need to buy the happy couple a new KitchenAid mixer off their registry. You can gift something smaller or get crafty and make something handmade, like hand-pressed flowers or dish towels with their monograms. They really just want you to be there. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Maeve Duvalley for showing us how to be good allies at work. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides with help from the Her Money team. This show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. And if you haven't yet, check out our new podcast. It's called How She Does It. It's hosted by the amazing Karen Feinerman, who many of you know from CNBC and also from from Her Money's Investing Fix program, our investing club for women. She is hosting these fabulous cocktail party style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk soon.